So two weeks ago now we were in Acts and we saw two weeks ago that it was by explaining the meaning the meaning of Jesus' life the meaning of his death that Peter was calling the people to see by faith the meaning and so also the divine necessity of the resurrection that was really important there (laughs) so later Peter is going to say this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses and so the fact that there were eyewitnesses to the historical fact of the resurrection was a very important thing it was essential that there be eyewitnesses I don't want to downplay that but the ultimate ground of saving faith cannot be eyewitness testimony. The ultimate ground of our faith in the resurrection is the true meaning and therefore the divine necessity of the resurrection. You see, that's why you believe, because you've understood what it, what it means and therefore why it is necessary. We've used this language before in going through John. The resurrection we have come to understand had to happen. And so we rejoice to know, based on eyewitness testimony, that it has happened. Therefore, the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus is more certain to me and to you than any other fact in the universe. You see that when we, when we understand the meaning of the resurrection, therefore it's divine necessity, and we understand those things certainly by faith. And when we combine the fact that we've seen its necessity and its meaning with the eyewitness testimony, therefore there is one fact that is more certain to us than any other fact as certain as those facts may be in the universe, and that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. This is something of which we have absolute certainty. And it's this true meaning and the consequent divine necessity in your handout of the resurrection that Peter continues to proclaim to us now. Um, So he quotes from Psalm chapter 16. For David says of him, David says of Jesus... I saw the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now here's my question for us this morning okay how can Peter say how can Peter say that these words of David are a prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus when in fact they're a prayer David was praying for himself you see when when David when Peter says that David says these things of Jesus what he means is that when David speaks in the first person, I, me, my, so David 
a thousand years before Jesus, is praying, and he's saying, I and me and my. But what Peter is saying is that when he says those things, he's saying them as if it's not just himself, or even primarily himself, who's speaking. But the Messiah, Jesus, is speaking with his words. Now, how can, how can Peter get away with saying that? For that matter, how could David get away with praying like that? Can he just pray a prayer for me and then say, well, that's Jesus' prayer. He's gonna, that's his prayer, really. It's not mine. I'm praying it, but it's actually his. How can we make sense of this? Well, the first thing that we need to acknowledge is that in their original context, the words of Psalm 16 are David's own personal prayer. I mean, he's just praying. Uh, And it's his testimony. And Peter is not denying that reality or excluding that sense of David's words. So David prays Psalm 16 for himself, for his own time. But we cannot forget, and David never forgot, that he had been appointed by God as a public person. So, like, if I pray a prayer, it's not the same thing as David praying a prayer. Because David was a public person. He was the king of Israel. And not only that, he was the father of that kingly line from which the ultimate messianic king would come. You cannot forget who David was, and David himself did not forget that. So he writes, look at what we read in 2 Samuel 23. David, the son of Jesse, declares... The man who was raised on high declares. The anointed of the God of Jacob. And the sweet psalmist of Israel. Is there any doubt about who it is that's declaring? Four different times in different ways we've established. It's David. And this is what he says. The spirit of Yahweh spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. This is a lot of build-up to get to this, right? We're finally getting there now because of all this build-up because this is what David was all about. This was the defining reality of his life. He who rules over men as a righteous one, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds, from brightness of the sun after rain, with the tender grass springing from the earth. Do we not long for a king like that? For a government like that? I suppose it's hard for us to even fathom or imagine what such a rule and reign would be, it, in a sense. But let's ask the question. Who is the one, when David says, this is what the Lord spoke by me, who is this one who rules over men as a righteous one? Who rules in the fear of God? Now David knew that his own reign had not fulfilled this ideal. And he also knew it could never be realized in the passing reigns of any single one of his descendants. I mean, David knew it wasn't fulfilled in his reign. And what's his son? Is his son going to 
do better than he does? His son who lives and dies like he does? No. So we ask again, who is the one who rules over men as a righteous one, who rules in the fear of God? In whom is this ideal to be realized? And we're asking at this point, what did David think? What did David know? David answers. We think, well, David couldn't. I could answer Jesus. We know Jesus, right? No, no, but David knows the answer too. He says, truly, is not my house so with God? Notice he doesn't say, truly, am I not so with God? He says, is not my house so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured. Oh, for all my salvation and all my desire, now he does say my, will he not indeed make it sprout forth? Get into the mind of David. Get into his mind now. What is he thinking as the king of Israel, the anointed of Yahweh? He's looking down the corridors of time to the future and he sees his salvation in the covenant that God made with him as the king of Israel. He sees it sprouting forth. And so he concludes, based on this everlasting covenant that God made with him, that his own salvation and the salvation of all his house will one day sprout forth in that king who would indeed rule over men as a righteous one in the fear of God, whose reign would be everlasting even as the covenant itself is everlasting. What did we sing today? Come and reign over us. We need a king like this. Sinners need a king like this to reign over us in righteousness. It is in this light then that we must read all the prayers that David prayed as God's anointed king. Okay. Because we have to come back to this Psalm 16. Though the prayers were really and truly David's own. David wasn't just praying like saying, well let me, let me pray what the Messiah will pray. And then that'll be his. No, he was praying as the anointed king prayers that he needed to pray that applied to him but he never forgot that he was himself in a way that none of us could ever imagine he was by virtue of God's everlasting covenant with him and with his house he was a prophetic figure I am not a prophetic figure you're not a prophetic figure David was a prophetic figure both in terms of his kingly office, which foreshadowed the ultimate kingship of Israel's Messiah, and in terms of his royal person as the father of the line from which that Messiah would come. So David was a prophetic person in terms of his office as king and in terms of his person as the father of the line from which the king would come. David's personal prayers there, therefore. When David prays personally, are you getting the picture? When David prays personally, it's kind of different from you and me praying personally. They were invested 
with a fundamentally prophetic character. Now, some of those prayers were more intentionally prophetic than others were. Psalm 16 is one of those prayers. So let's read Psalm 16. Let's hear King David in his own time praying this prayer. And let's hear more than that. Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, You are my Lord, I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. And you can almost hear David saying, it's my job to make sure that they're multiplied. right? In judgment, in, in enforcing justice and righteousness in the land. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. And that's good to hear coming from the king. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You know, David, having prayed this prayer, just begins to exude joy and confidence For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Now, what did you hear? Do you hear in David's words an intentional prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus? Is that what you heard? Does David speak these words as his own words, or does he speak them only as the words of someone else, or both? On the one hand, these are the words of David, his own words in your handout, his own personal prayer and testimony. So it's basically, we envision something like this. In the face of some specific threat to his life, to his people, um, As the king of Israel, David is confident that he won't die. I mean, he knows he's going to die someday. But he's not going to die now. He's not going to be overwhelmed by his enemies now. He's not going to see corruption. Not yet. He is confident that he will go on living and enjoying the pleasures of the presence of God in his temple. What what a... What a wonderful thing to have a righteous king. What a wonderful thing it is to be the people of a righteous king. Now, that was David. On the other hand, these words can be David's own prayer and testimony. Why why is he so confident that his enemies won't defeat him? Why is he so confident of that? Only in so far in your handout... As God has made an everlasting covenant with him and with his house. Why is God going to spare me in this moment of peril? Because there's an everlasting covenant he's made with me and with my house. Now David knows he's going to die someday. 
But not today. And not by the hands of these enemies. Because God has made an everlasting covenant with me. Ordered in all things and secure. And that means that today I live. I do not see corruption. He will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David's prayer for the present is consciously rooted in his mind and heart in that everlasting covenant God made with him. Therefore, we have to see this. Whatever temporal salvation David might be envisaging for himself, it only has meaning. Who cares if David is spared for the day? Right? Who cares? If we cannot see that against the backdrop, indeed as part and parcel of the future everlasting salvation of his house a salvation that he confessed by faith David confessed would sprout forth one day in the everlasting reign of a king who rules in righteousness and in the fear of the Lord let me put it this way what what does David's personal salvation mean apart from the everlasting salvation of his house means nothing and I mean as king what does David's personal salvation as king mean apart from the everlasting salvation of his house now notice how in the middle of all David's first person references I, me, my all of a sudden only one place in the psalm all of a sudden he refers to himself in the third person you will not forsake my soul to Hades nor give your holy one over to see corruption is David all of a sudden getting kind of full of himself is he getting conceited no he's referring to your holy one as the one God has consecrated and set apart as king So who is God's Holy One? Well, at one level, it's David. And David knows that. But again, that's true only if God has made an everlasting covenant with David concerning his house. His house. God's Holy One, therefore, is not just David. As a private person. It is David as the king And God's Holy One is in one sense whoever is sitting on David's throne and he is in the truest and most ultimate sense that future king. The king who comes from David's house whose rule is as the light of the morning when the sun rises this is God's Holy One. A morning without clouds from brightness of the sun after rain when the tender grass springs from the earth. That's the goodness of the reign of a righteous king. Any personal temporal rescue of David from death at the hand of his enemies can only have ultimate meaning when we see that deliverance against this backdrop of a king who will never see corruption. See, David says, you will not allow me to see corruption. He was talking for himself temporarily in the present. But David knew that he would see it one day. And so the fact that he wouldn't see corruption today only mattered if his descendant would never see corruption. 
It only mattered. It only has ultimate meaning when we see it against the backdrop of that one whose rule and reign will be as everlasting as the covenant that was made with David. Whatever David prays concerning God's Holy One is a prayer that ultimately concerns the Messiah. And David knew that better than anyone else. David knows that this prayer he is praying will be fulfilled when a king who comes from his house will finally experience himself a permanent, everlasting deliverance from death. So David was prophesying the resurrection of Jesus in this prayer that he prayed concerning himself. And he did so knowingly. So Peter continues. Then, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne, he looked ahead. He looked ahead. How can we look ahead? We cannot see the future. No, but God reveals it to us in his promises and his covenants. And so David could look ahead by faith and see that coming king and see his resurrection and see that he would not see corruption. That he was not forsaken to Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. Now I want to ask you a question here, okay? For Peter, is this just a proof text for the historical fact of the resurrection? You know, but basically, is Peter just quoting this verse for a gotcha moment? Because if that's what it is, probably going to fail pretty badly. Right? Is this just a great way to win the argument? Is Jesus dead or is Jesus alive? Well, look at this verse. He's alive. No. Peter is proving irrefutably from the scripture. What? What's the blank? Does anyone know what the word is? I hear mumbling, so I'm not sure, but it was... Sorry, I didn't mean that badly. In case you said the word and I'm, and I'm not recognizing it, but it's the meaning, right? He's proving from the scripture the meaning of the resurrection. See, we get, we get, sometimes we get distracted. And we're like, well, how, how, did, this, how did this scripture, how is it a prophecy of the, the resurrection of Jesus? Well, and so we get it figured out. Okay, prophecy of the, okay, that's cool. It ha- God said it and it happened. But no, not really. Look at all the work we just did. Brothers and sisters, the good news is the work we just did was not just for the sake of proving a fact. The work we just did was for the sake of understanding the meaning. The meaning of the resurrection. What does the resurrection mean? It means, according to Psalm 16, it means the arrival of Messiah's kingdom. What does the resurrection mean? It means the fulfillment of God's everlasting covenant with David. David, who looked down the corridors of time, looked to this moment 
that has been revealed and manifested in the resurrection of Jesus. To see then by faith the true meaning of the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, I, 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 I speak to you as people within whom God has implanted faith. And that is my confidence in preaching. And that God can implant faith whenever he, whenever he wants. So to those who have not believed, it's through the hearing of the word that God, that God gives faith, right? So when we hear Psalm 16, and when we hear Peter's testimony that he witnessed the resurrected Christ, we see the king. That's what we see. The king that, Paul, that David spoke about in 2 Samuel 23, whose rule is as that beautiful picture of the, the sun rising in a morning after rain without clouds and the grass sprouting from the earth. To see by faith the true meaning of the resurrection is to see by faith the true necessity of the resurrection. And so now we understand, Peter, it is not just the resurrection that Peter is proving from Psalm 16. Peter wasn't saying, now how do I prove to you that Jesus is alive? Oh, I got Psalm 16 for that. No, he is doing that, but not like that. It is the messianic, kingly rule of Jesus that Peter is proving. By what? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is proving from the scriptures, the kingly present rule and reign of Jesus from the resurrection. The resurrection, therefore, is not simply that which needs to be proved, but that which is itself the ultimate proof. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, as Psalm 16 said, he must be because that's the covenant made with David and otherwise we don't have the king that was promised then he must be according to the scriptures according to Psalm 16 he must be the promised king from David's house who's ruling today in righteousness in the fear of the Lord that king that we so wish for that's the king we have now we recognize he's not yet consummated his kingdom and returned in, with all his saints and the angels in glory and but brothers and sisters, nevertheless, it's the king we have. He has appeared. He is. He is ruling and reigning. Because by faith, we see the meaning of the resurrection in fulfillment of the scriptures. Therefore, therefore, the resurrection is more certain to us than any other fact in the universe. Can you say that? I know that if I jump up off the ground, I'm going to come back down. That's a fact of the universe. That's the laws of gravity. More certain to me than that I'll come back down when I've jumped up is that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's not simply a subjective thing. It is rooted in the only certain way, certain confidence of knowing that there is, and that is the word of God foretold and fulfilled, revealed in the salvation of sinners. 
So Peter concludes, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Look, look how little he emphasizes to which we are all witnesses. But it's there. That is important. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy... Look, he doesn't say, well, we've got the king, but now uh, everything's in abeyance, if, that's, if I'm saying that word right. I've, I've read it, but never... Uh, so everything's just kind of waiting now. We're in a holding pattern until the king starts reigning. No, that's not what happened. That makes a mockery of the resurrection. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. We remember it's Pentecost. He has poured out this which you both see and hear. Now, after then referring to the Spirit, what does he do? He comes right back to the kingly rule and reign of Jesus. For David did not ascend into the heavens. David did not ascend. Not only did he not never see corruption, but he didn't ascend into the heavens. But David himself says, quoting again from another psalm of David, the Lord, or Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, the, the king who will come from my house, sit at my right hand, Sit and reign. Sit and rule. Until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain. Even more than that. When you jump up off the ground you come back down. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified that all the house of Israel know what for certain know what for certain not simply that Jesus has been raised from the dead but that God by raising him from the dead a fact to which they were witnesses has made him to be both Lord and Christ why does Peter focus on the resurrection? You know, isn't this, isn't this Pentecost? Isn't this the Holy Spirit chapter? Why are we spending so much time focusing on Jesus and the resurrection? That was in the Gospels. That's already happened, right? Why does he do this? Because it's the resurrection that proves Jesus to be the king. And therefore, it's the resurrection that proves the arrival of Messiah's kingdom. It is here. Now, you say, that doesn't answer the question. What does this have to do with Pentecost and the Holy Spirit? This Jesus, Peter says, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see in here. What does Peter, where does Peter put this pouring out of the Spirit? Into what context does Peter put the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? He puts it into the context of the kingly rule and reign of Jesus the Messiah. Okay? This is, helps us to understand not only Jesus' rule and reign, but the, but, the, but the gift that the Spirit is. The outpoured Holy Spirit very simply is the means by which Jesus is even now ruling and reigning over us from heaven. 
we could say in your handout that the outpoured Holy Spirit is the rule and the reign of Jesus. Notice how Peter says that having been exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. That is an interesting thing. Why does he say the promise of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not by accident. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that we were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. There are places where the Holy Spirit is referred to as the promise of the Father. Period. Without qualification. So in Luke 24, Jesus says to the disciples, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And you, what, Are we going to say, well, what do you mean? What promise? Well, no, we know. You, you, you said the promise of the Father. You know what that is. That's, in, in a sense, there's only one promise. It's the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us how Jesus commanded the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. In just a moment, Peter is going to say, for the promise. Now he just says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. What promise is he talking about? The Holy Spirit, we know. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So what does that tell you? This promise of the Holy Spirit is not to be seen as one among many promises. Like the Father has made many promises and the Holy Spirit is one of them. No. This promise is the promise par excellence. The promise. That if there are other promises, this is the promise that encompasses them all, that sums up them all, and that communicates them all to you and to me. This promise is the promise to end all promises. It is this promise then that is the kingdom. This promise that is the rule and the reign of Christ. Now let's just unpack this for a moment. I've got a lot of scriptures in your handout. The, script, the Spirit as promise. Why is he called the promise? Well, that points us back to the Old Testament. Well, we learn first of all that the coming King and Messiah is going to be uniquely anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61. The spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me. Says the, suffering, says the servant of the Lord. Because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives. And what is it that gives effectiveness to this message, that gives power to this proclamation? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
right? and, and, and you can read the rest. So in the Old Testament, the first thing we learn about the future, looking down the quarters of time, is that when this Messiah comes, he's going to be uniquely anointed by the Spirit. And so we read in Luke, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, because the Holy Spirit comes upon you, therefore the Holy Child who is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit shall be called the Son of God. We see from the very beginning the powerful working of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John. Heaven is opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as has never been seen or happened before in the history of the world in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven at this moment, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Luke chapter 4, Jesus returned from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. When you think of Jesus, you think of a man supremely, supremely full of the Spirit. And he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Chapter 4, later on, Luke says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. In the same chapter, Jesus is going to stand up in a synagogue at Nazareth and he's going to quote from Isaiah 62. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And then after reading those words, he's going to say to the people, today, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Finally, in Acts chapter 10, Peter sums up the entire ministry of Jesus like this. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power so that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. You see, our Messiah, Jesus, accomplished our salvation. He even came into this world under the power, anointed by the power of the Spirit of God. We already see the flavor of these days in the Messiah who has come. The Spirit, as promised, points us to the Old Testament where we learn, first, that the coming Messiah will be uniquely anointed and empowered by the Spirit. Second, that the coming kingdom age is to be, above all else, the age of the Spirit. Isaiah 44. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I, have, for I will pour out water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry land. I will pour out my spirit on your seed and my blessing on your offspring. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Isaiah 59. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares Yahweh as for me this is my covenant with them says Yahweh my spirit which is upon you my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your seed nor from the mouth of your seed's seed says Yahweh from now and forever Isaiah 32 hill and watchtower have become caves forever a joy for wild donkeys a pasture for flocks until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful orchard, and the fruitful orchard is counted as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will live in the fruitful orchard. Remember that. 
When the Spirit is poured out, then righteousness. And the work of righteousness will be peace. Remember that. Righteousness and peace when the Spirit is poured out. And the service of righteousness, quietness and security forever. I'm not going to read Ezekiel 39, but you can see it says, For I will have poured out my Spirit. And then, of course, Joel chapter 2 is the, is the passage that Peter quotes. It will be afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit. And then at the end of that passage, I will in those days pour out my Spirit. Okay. So, in the Old Testament, we learn then that the coming kingdom age is to be above all else the age of the Spirit. Okay. And so in the New Testament, Peter contrasts the Old Covenant age of the letter with the New Covenant age of the Spirit. He contrasts the Old Covenant ministry of death in letters engraved on stones with now the New Covenant ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of condemnation with the ministry of righteousness. Let me put it this way. This you might find very interesting. In the Old Testament, which... You know, if I were to find where it is, the Old Testament is like most of our Bibles, right? It's, it's, it's over three quarters of our Bibles is the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Yahweh is referred to 79 times in the Old Testament. 79 times. Three quarters of your Bible. More than three quarters. In the New Testament, which makes up less than one quarter of your Bible the Holy Spirit is referred to four times more than the Old Testament. 239 times. In just Luke and Acts alone, just Luke and Acts alone, the Spirit is referred to nearly almost as many times as in the entire Old Testament. What does that tell you? We are living today in the age of the spirit which is to say that we are living in the age of the rule and the reign of God's Messiah in Jesus Christ the coming kingdom age is to be above all else the age of the Holy Spirit why is that why is it to be above all else the age of the Holy Spirit why because It is the Spirit-anointed, Spirit-filled King who himself baptizes with the Holy Spirit and who himself gives the Holy Spirit without measure. I love how that's put together. We, We read in the Old Testament that the coming Messiah is going to be filled with the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. We got the king. We read in the Old Testament that the coming age is going to be preeminently above all else, the age of the Spirit. And then we learn in the New Testament that it is that king, supremely endowed with the Spirit, who himself baptizes with the Spirit and gives the Spirit without measure. Here in Acts chapter 2, who is it? who pours out the Spirit upon us as his people? It's the King. It's the Lord in Christ who pours out the Spirit upon us, which is simply to say, 
that this outpoured Holy Spirit is the means by which Jesus is even now ruling and reigning over us from his throne in the heavens. Come and reign over us. How does he do that? Through the Spirit poured out. Jesus said to the Pharisees, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Brothers and sisters, when you hear the Spirit, think the kingdom. When you hear the kingdom, think the Spirit. Because it is the King endowed supremely with the Spirit who gives the Spirit without measure and rules over us by His Spirit. Paul affirms, no one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can truly say Jesus is King. Jesus is Messiah. Except by the Holy Spirit. Because God rules over us by His Spirit, thus enabling us to submit to His rule as His people. The Kingdom of God, says Paul. Remember I asked us to remember righteousness and peace in Isaiah Paul says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom, Spirit. It is therefore by the Holy Spirit poured out on you, poured out on you, yes, you personally, individually, you, just say it, me, right? You can say it to yourself, me. But then also poured out upon us as a people as a body as a church it's by the spirit poured out upon us that all the blessings of Christ's present not just future his present mediatorial reign and I say mediatorial I took it out and then I put it back in during this week mediatorial simply means that Jesus is ruling and reigning on behalf of the father He mediates to us now the rule of the Father. All the blessings of his present reign, righteousness, peace, joy, every other spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are communicated to us. And this is so because in your handout, the Holy Spirit is himself all of these blessings. Okay. Whatever blessings you can name, The Holy Spirit is that blessing. Because the Holy Spirit is himself poured out on us and even living within us. He is himself the rule and the reign of Jesus. Do you want to know what the rule and the reign of Jesus is? He is the Spirit poured out upon us. So let's put it like this. Do you have righteousness? Whether it's imputed to you or whether it's a, a, a righteousness that you, you live, that is being worked in you, do you have righteousness? That is simply to say that you have the Spirit. Now I'm going to go down the list here with some. Let me ask you this. Do you have peace? Can you have peace? Do you have peace? If you do, that is simply to say that you have the Spirit. Do you have joy? That is simply to say that you have the Spirit. 
Do you have the forgiveness of sins? Is that a blessing of Christ's mediatorial reign that you have today? Then you know that that is to say you have the Spirit through whom God rules and reigns over us. That, that Jesus rules and reigns over us. Do you have a future? Do you have a hope? That is to say, you have the Spirit. Do you have any other blessing? Do you have any other blessing of Christ's rule in the heavens? Then this is simply to say, I have the Spirit. And so we read in verses 37 to 39. Now when they heard this, when they heard that Jesus whom they had crucified was the one God had made both Lord and Christ, when they heard about his kingship, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? May that be the cry of our hearts hearing the word of God preached to us. Even as Christians, we feel that sense of, men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, whom God has made both Lord and Christ, right? The King, the Messiah, the promised one from David's house. For the forgiveness of your sins and you look he brings back the spirit doesn't bring back the spirit but he 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 comes back into the discussion and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit what does the holy spirit receiving the gift of the holy spirit have to do with hearing that jesus is both lord and christ it has everything to do with it because the kingship of jesus is mediated to me through the spirit that he pours out upon me For he says, the promise, the promise. We only need to speak of one promise. It is for you and your children, for all who are far off, and for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. It makes me realize I need to ask, first of all then, Peter says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just say you will receive the Holy Spirit. What does he say? You will receive what? The gift. I want to ask you, is there any greater gift that you can imagine at this moment right now? You might go home and get distracted by some other things. But at this moment, I think we should be pretty, pretty clear, even in our heart of hearts, that there is only one gift that's supreme that makes all other gifts no longer gifts. It's the gift of the Spirit. Now by that I'm not excluding Jesus. That's impossible. The Spirit is the gift that mediates to us the rule and the reign of Jesus in the heavens. But it is this gift of the Spirit that we ought to treasure and value above all else. And so I ask you, have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Which is to say, have you received the gift of the kingdom? In Luke's Gospel, there are two things that the Father is said to give to Jesus' disciples. And so Jesus says in Luke 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What is God giving us when he gives us the Spirit? He's giving us the kingdom. Luke chapter 12. Do not fear, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. I like that, you know, in in Luke 11 when Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children... Well, then when he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Compared to that, are there any good gifts? Are there any good gifts? There are none. Compared to the Holy Spirit. No stingy or reluctant giver is our heavenly Father. Banish the thought from your mind. He is no stingy or reluctant giver. So let us then come to him in repentance and faith asking. And let us rejoice to know that in the very asking is the giving. We don't ask and wait to see if he'll give. We ask and know that in the asking is the giving. In so freely giving to us the Holy Spirit our Father Our Father has given to us the kingdom. All the blessings of Christ's reign, which is everlasting, and will one day be revealed visibly on earth in all of its fullness. He has given to us, in Christ the King, everything that there is to give. And therefore, more than an eternity with him will ever be able to exhaust. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, may we rejoice today to have such a king. The king who rules as the righteous one, who rules in the fear of the Lord, and whose rule from, the, from his throne in the heavens is mediated today already to us through the Spirit poured out upon us. And so we praise you that we have the Spirit. That all those other blessings that we could name and that it is good and, and right for us and proper to name and to list and to go on, all of those things are simply to say that we have the Spirit. That's all, it, that's all it's saying. That's everything it's saying. We give you thanks that you have been well pleased to give us the kingdom. We give you thanks that you, contrary to even the best of human parents who, are, who have evil within us and seek to give good gifts to our children, how much more have you given us to all who ask the gift of the, of the Holy Spirit? And we thank you too, O Lord, that it is through the Spirit that our Lord Jesus Christ is guarding us, is keeping and protecting us, 
is preserving us safe until his heavenly kingdom is fully revealed and manifested. Father, in the meantime then, help us to remember that we are subjects of such a king. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and I would pray, Lord, uh, for, for all of us need to be humbled in confessing our sin. I also pray that should there be anyone who has not known Christ as King, who does not have the Spirit, that through repentance and faith they might know Him in this way today. In Jesus' name, amen.